Yeah, last week we talked about um, we talked about a, a difficult passage, and we talked about a confusing passage, and we've seen throughout this whole chapter, John chapter six, this feeding of the five thousand, this walking on the water, this confusion of the crowds and of the Jewish religious leaders of the day. We've seen that there's a misunderstanding, there's a lack of understanding, there's a failure to see the spiritual truth that our Lord is trying to communicate. And there's a focus throughout the whole chapter on the earthly, on the external, on that which is perishing. And so last week we talked about this language that Christ uses of eating and drinking of him. And pretty explicit language, he says, whoever does not eat my flesh and drink my blood has no life in him. And so we talked about last week, what does that mean? And we talked about this idea of being united to Christ, of feeding on Him and partaking of Him, and this necessity of being united to Christ and His person and His work, and that it's necessary. It's not an optional thing. It's not a secondary, take it or leave it kind of thing. It's absolutely necessary. And that's what Jesus has been trying to communicate throughout this whole chapter, is that these people... They fail to see what he's saying. And he presses in and he points them to their need to, to, save, to savingly believe in him. There's no other way of salvation but by faith in Christ. And so what we'll see today is that not only is this true of the crowds who were fed by the miraculous feeding, not only is this true of the Jewish religious leaders, but this confusion and misunderstanding is also true of some disciples and followers of Christ who by the end of this chapter will reject and leave our Savior. Which is sobering. And so as we look at our passage today, we'll see the beginning of this. And we'll find that this difficult teaching of our Lord causes some to leave, to go another way. And we see ultimately that this message that Jesus has of eating and drinking of him, that salvation in his name alone, that it's offensive to them. Or they find it to be unpopular. Or maybe it's a difficult thing to swallow. And so we'll see in our passage this morning that Jesus is going to continually point these things to the people. He's going to point out two things. He's going to point out their self-reliance their reliance on their own human understanding, their reliance on the flesh, on human will and exertion. And then ultimately, and at the end of this passage, we'll see that he points them to their only hope of salvation, which is reliance not on themselves, but on the work of the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit. And we'll see throughout this passage this work of the triune God, this ascension of the Son of Man, <laughs> this quickening, life-giving, power of the Spirit, and finally, the divine mercy of the Father. And so I'm going to read our passage this morning, I'll pray for us, and then we'll look at God's Word. I'm going to begin at verse 59. This is the Word of the Lord. Now Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. And when many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, Do you take offense at this? 
Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life, but there are some of you who do not believe. John says, For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe, and who it was who would betray him. And he said, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted by the Father. Let's pray. Lord, we come before you this morning. Um, we come this morning expectant, Lord. As we've sung your praise this morning, as we've confessed our sin this morning, as we've been assured of your pardon this morning, we come, as we've just read this passage in John 6, we come expectant. Not anything in ourselves, but expecting that you will work in and through your word by the power of your spirit. That this morning as we hear the word and, and look at the truth of the scripture, as they, as they communicate to us divine, supernatural truths, we come this morning trusting that you will work in us, that you will grow your people in grace, that you will convict us of our sin, that you will help us to turn our eyes towards Christ, Lord, and as we come this morning, we're in great need. We're in great need, and as we read this morning, we're in great need of your spirit. That there's no act of the flesh, there's no eloquent words that I can say that can convince anyone of anything. It takes the work of the spirit of God alone to act in our hearts this morning. And so we pray, Lord, that you would, that you would work amongst your people that you would draw us to yourself, and that this morning we would turn our eyes toward faith in the gospel and in what Christ has done for sinners like us. We pray these things in your son's name. Amen. Amen. So as we come to this passage, we sort of come to a whole new section, and John chapter 6 is kind of interesting. It almost covers every aspect of the Christian life in one sense. But there's these several different interactions that we have. We've seen these interactions with the crowds, those that have been fed by Jesus. In the last couple weeks, we looked at the interaction between Jesus and the religious leaders of the day called the Jews and John's Gospel. And today we'll look at an interaction between Jesus and what are called here his disciples. Now, we have to be clear that these are not the 12 disciples. We'll see in the next section that they're distinguished from the 12 disciples. And so our section is dealing with a different group of disciples that will ultimately leave our Lord. And so we see that this has taken place after his teaching at Capernaum. He's expounded on this need to feed on the heavenly bread, this bread that comes down from heaven. It's not like the bread that he gave them or that the bread that the fathers ate in the wilderness and they perished. It's this heavenly bread that's going to satisfy them and bring them to eternal life. And Jesus is talking about himself. He says, I'm the bread of life. <laughs> Whoever believes in me will never hunger. Whoever believes in me will never thirst. And so we see here that not only were these crowds following Jesus, not only were these religious leaders following Jesus, but he had a group of disciples, followers of Jesus that were following him and his teaching. And so they probably heard him preach the good news in other areas, in other towns. They'd followed him, and they were his disciples. They are identified in John chapter 6, verse 60, as his disciples. 
And then we come to this passage and we see that there's a difficulty. There's a hardship. And the hardship is the teaching of our Lord. And it says in John chapter 6, verse 60, When many of his disciples heard this, they said, This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? This is obviously a reference to what Jesus had said before, right? And so some people debate, is this all of John chapter 6? Is it just his teaching at the synagogue? Is it specifically his language of eating his flesh and drinking his blood? Really, we can say that it's really all of what Jesus is saying here. This idea of the incarnation. Jesus saying he's come down from heaven. That he's not a mere man, but he is God incarnate. And this idea of the suffering of Christ, that this explicit language of eating his flesh and drinking his blood, I mean, this would have been a hard saying. And we talked last week about how it's indeed even a hard saying for us. And so what the people are saying here, this idea of a hard saying, they're saying this is difficult to digest. And they also say, who is going to listen to this, right? Who can hear these words? These are strange words. Who's going who's gonna to listen to this? And we might be tempted here to think that these people are just sort of asking for help. They're just trying to understand more of what Jesus is saying. Right? This is a hard saying. Can you tell us more about what you're saying? But that's not what's going on here. They're not just looking for someone to explain them to them what's going on. We see in verse 61 that they are actually grumbling. That they're complaining that they don't like what our Lord has said. Something about this message is offensive to them. It's unpopular. It's difficult for them to swallow. They're grumbling. And so we can say, it's not that they want to understand what Jesus says. They want what he says to be easier. They want it to be an easier thing. This is too difficult, Jesus, not in terms of understanding, of difficult to understand, but they want it to be easy. They want it to be less difficult. They want it to be the wide road. And sadly, this is too common in our day, right? We know people that when they hear the difficult teaching of our Lord about sin and repentance, that they shrink back and they say, no, that's, that's not the Jesus I want to follow. I want a different Jesus. And this language has crept into much of how we talk about church and the things of God and even witnessing, right? We kind of present this easy believism, right? Where Jesus is just out there and he, and he wants the best for you and there's, there's no need to, you know, turn from those things that separate us from God. But again and again in the New Testament, this language of taking up your cross and following Jesus is explicit, <laughs> There's no easy believism. There's no easy way, right? We learn of our, our Lord's burden is easy and it's light, but at the same time, we have to daily take up our cross and follow him. There's almost this paradoxical language that's used. And so these people, they're complaining. They're taking offense at what Jesus is saying, and they want something easier. They want an easier path, an easier road. And we see that Jesus knows this. He, they didn't say these things to Jesus. He omnisciently knows what they're thinking. And it says in verse 61 that he knows in himself what they were saying, what they were grumbling about. And he asked them a question. He says, do you take offense at this? 
Do you take offense at this? He knows their heart. He knows that what he said is offensive to them. And so he asked them. He can see their hearts. <laughs> They're open and exposed before him. We've read this in John chapter 2 that people were believing in Christ, but he did not entrust himself to them because he knew what was in them. He sees that their reliance is not on Jesus. It's not on his teaching. They're not trusting Jesus, saying, even, the, even though this is a difficult saying, we're going to trust you. That's not what they're saying. They're complaining, they're grumbling, and they're relying on their own human understanding. And he points them to this great work of the triune God. So this will be our outline this morning. First, we'll look at the Son of Man in verse 62. Then we'll look at the Spirit of Life in verse 63 and 64. And then finally, we'll look at the Father of Mercy. The Father of Mercy. So we come to what our Lord says after his question to them. He actually asks another question. In verse 62, he says this. Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? These are amazing words of our Lord. He is pointing them to actually something higher, more heavenly, and even more difficult to understand. Our Lord here is pointing to his ascension and his pre-existence. It's almost as if he's saying to them, if you thought the teaching was hard about my incarnation, my suffering, eating and drinking of me, how are you going to be able to hear and believe and understand something even more difficult, even more glorious, even more heavenly? And the words here are very similar to what Jesus said to Nicodemus in John chapter 3. He says, you're a teacher of the law, and yet you don't understand these things. How will you understand if I'm going to show you more heavenly things? And it's very similar language that our Lord is using. And we see that he points him to the ascension of the Son of Man. Now, what is the ascension? The ascension is the bodily lifting up of our Lord into the heavens. That not only was the Son of Man descended in the Incarnation, right? The Son of God took on flesh for us and for our salvation. But the Son of Man will also be ascended to the right hand of the Father, as we talked about in our catechism class this morning. And he will sit at the right hand of the Father. And this is a part of, a gospel, of the Gospel that I think we often forget or neglect. That our Lord not only died, not only was raised on the third day, but he ascended into heaven. He ascended to the right hand of the Father, where he lives to make intersection, inter, not intersection, intercession for us, right? We read in Romans chapter 8, this is what Paul grounds his argument of the, the lack of condemnation for the people of God, right? He says, who can condemn the people of God? Who can condemn them? He says, Christ has died, Christ was risen, and he is at the right hand of the Father, interceding for his people. So no one can bring a charge against God's people. No one can bring a charge against the elect. Why? Because Christ has died, Christ has risen, and he's at the right hand of the Father. He's ascended into heaven. And so we see that our Lord is grounding this, this argument in the ascension of the Son of Man. And then he says something very interesting. At the end of verse 62, he says that the Son of Man is going to ascend to where he was before. 
where he was before, that we saw earlier in John chapter 6, that people had a problem with the incarnation. They had a problem with the fact that Jesus was saying that he'd come down from heaven. And that language of coming down from heaven implies that Jesus, or the Son of God, existed before his incarnation. That the Son of God didn't come into existence when he was born of a virgin, but he always existed. <laughs> he always existed. And that Jesus is saying here that he's going to go back to where he was before. He's going to return to the Father. This is the language of pre-existence. And this would have greatly troubled the people. Because in their minds, Jesus was just a mere man. He was just a man that was a miraculous sign worker. Maybe he had some good moral teaching. But he was not the Son of God incarnate. And yet we see Jesus saying, I'm going to go back to where I was before. And then this language of the Son of Man is very interesting. He says, if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before. The Son of Man is this language from Daniel chapter 7. Daniel chapter 7. And this imagery that we see in Daniel chapter 7 is a prophecy of one who's going to come like the Son of Man who's going to ascend on the clouds to the Ancient of Days, and he's going to be given a kingdom and a people that won't pass away. Does that sound familiar to anyone? <laughs> Jesus here is connecting himself with this prophecy of the Son of Man in the Old Testament, this one from Daniel chapter 7, that's going to ascend on the clouds, return to the Ancient of Days, the Father, and be given a kingdom and a people that will have no end. This is Jesus saying, basically, I'm the Son of Man. I'm the one who's going to come, who's going to be given a kingdom and a people without end. And so we see here our Lord, He points the people not to their fleshly understanding, but to their heavenly, what they should be pointed to heavenly. Namely, that Jesus is more than He appears. He's not just the Son of Man. He's not just... A person that walked on the earth, he's much more than that. He's the eternal Son of God. And Jesus knows what's going on in their hearts. He sees what's really happening here. That even though these disciples had followed him, they followed his teaching, maybe they'd seen him multiply the bread and the loaves, they can't hide from Jesus. He knows their hearts, and they can't fool him. They can't trick him. With their, with their eloquent words. They can't trick him just by saying they follow him. He knows the desires and intentions of their hearts. Just like he does ours. And so he points these people to their great need that is outside of themselves. And that brings us to verse 63 where he says this. He said, is this the spirit who gives life, the flesh is no help at all. It is the spirit who gives life, the flesh is no help at all. He's pointing these people outside of themselves. You're not going to find any hope in your flesh that it is the spirit alone who gives life. And in, in, some, in words, he's really saying, don't be confused. Don't marvel at what I'm saying to you. The flesh is no help at all. And again, this is a very parallel passage to what we see in John chapter 3 with Nicodemus. Nicodemus comes to Jesus. 
he talks about these great signs that Jesus has done. And he says to Nicodemus, you must be born again. You must be born again. And, Jesus, and Nicodemus is confused. He says, do I need to go back to my mother's womb a second time? And Jesus is saying, no, no, no. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. And the very parallel to what Jesus is saying here, the flesh is no help at all. It profits you nothing to just be born in terms of eternal life. You must be reborn. You must be born again, born from above. And these people were focused on their flesh. They were focused on what they could do. And Jesus is saying, the flesh is no help at all. And I think there's a connection here going on to what Jesus had said in the previous verse. Notice he said in verse 62, if you were to see the Son of Man, if you were to see the Son of Man, it's almost as if he's saying, even if you were to look on me, ascending to the right hand of the Father, it wouldn't be enough for you. It wouldn't be enough for you. That even seeing in this fleshly, earthly sense wouldn't be enough. And how many people do we know today who say things like this? If I could just see God do this for me, if I could just see God do this thing in my life, then I would believe. Then it would be enough. Surely it would be enough if I could see this thing or see that thing. If I could see this miracle, if I could get this job, then I would know that God is real. And Jesus is saying, even if you could see, it wouldn't be enough. No earthly, fleshly seeing is going to convince you. No work of the flesh is going to be able to give you life. No act of human will or capacity can bring you from death to life. It takes a divine act of the Spirit of God. That the third person of the triune God, the Holy Spirit, must be the one that comes and gives life to his people. The Spirit of God must give life to his people. That's our only hope. That's our only hope. That's what Jesus is pointing these people to. The flesh isn't going to help you. It's not going to help you. It is the Spirit alone. And for anybody who would say, well, this seems like a novel idea. This seems like Jesus is just introducing something totally different, right? Isn't the Old Testament about how we need to work our way to salvation and this idea of the Spirit is just in the New Testament? Far from it. We can go all the way back to even Genesis chapter 2 where God is creating men, and what does it say? That God breathed life into the dust, into Adam, and made man. And this language of breathed, this word in the Hebrew is the same as the word for spirit. And so we can say that just as God breathed creaturely life into Adam in this great act of creation, right? God created Adam and Eve. So in our new birth, in our recreation, God breathed spiritual life into his people by the Spirit. That this idea of the Spirit breathing life into God's people is not new. It's very old. If you go into Ezekiel chapter 36 and 37, what do you see? That it is the Spirit of God that cleanses his people, that indwells his people. Many of us are familiar with the valley of dry bones. There's all these dry bones in this valley. And what does God say to the prophet Elijah? He says, prophesy to the breath that it would blow and bring life to these dry bones. So this is not a new concept. This was told in the prophets of the Old Testament that God, by the Spirit, would bring life to his people. And Jesus here 
is speaking to them about this truth. And his, his words, as he says, the words that I have spoken to you are spirit in our life. There's nothing wrong with Jesus' words here. There's, it's not Jesus' fault that these people are not believing and trusting in him. He's spoken to them nothing but the truth, but the gospel, but the good news of the life that we have by the spirit. But there's a problem. And the problem is not in Jesus, but it is in them and in us. And we see that see this in verse 64. There were some of them who did not believe. There were some of them who did not believe. That even though Jesus had spoken to them these words of eternal life, they're not trusting in him. They're not believing in him. They're not having life by the Spirit. They're not coming to Him. They're not believing in Him. They're trusting in their own understanding. They're still in their fleshly minds. They're still darkened. They're still in death. Why? Why? And this brings us to our final point, the Father of mercy. And so we find the, the answer to this question of why in verse 65. And before we get there, we have to feel the weight of this, of this verse, right? Because Jesus has just explained to them the way that they can have life, and it's by the Spirit of God. It's by the Spirit of God working in their hearts, bringing life to their dead souls. And he's told them the flesh is no help, and yet they're not believing. And then Jesus says these words in verse 65, that should make us pause. He says this, and this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted by the Father. Whoa. What did Jesus just say? It sounds like he's saying something that's contradictory, right? Let's be honest. Let's be, let's be honest. This is a hard thing that Jesus just said. People are not believing in him, and yet he says, I told you this, that no one can come to me unless it is granted by the Father. He seems to put both of these things together, the unbelief in the people and the sovereignty of God. And it seems as if he's giving the people an excuse, a cop-out, right? Couldn't somebody just say, well, I guess the reason I didn't believe is because God didn't grant it to me. Or I guess if the Father didn't draw me, I guess I'm off the hook. There's no responsibility on my part. Or we can say it like this. If God is going to punish unbelievers, doesn't that make him unjust in some way? Doesn't that make God unjust in some way? As we go further in Scripture, we see that this is the exact question that the Apostle Paul anticipates. In Romans chapter 9, this is the exact question that the Apostle Paul anticipates, right? That the fact that God would save some and not others, doesn't this make God unjust? And Paul says this in Romans chapter 9. He says, is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. 
So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. He points the people in answering this question to the sovereign mercy of God. That these people in John chapter 6, just like us, are sinners. And lest we think that we deserve something from God, we need to go back a couple chapters. What does it say in John chapter 3? That we love the, light, the darkness. We love the darkness. We don't want to come to the light. We hate the light. That we would rather have the darkness. Why? Because we want to keep our evil deeds secret. We're no different than these people, trusting in ourselves, trusting in our own flesh. And we think to ourselves, well, I deserve mercy. I deserve mercy. I've earned it somehow. God deserves to give me mercy. Actually, what the scriptures tell us we deserve is the opposite. We deserve God's judgment, punishment, and even hell itself. That's what we deserve. That's what our sin has earned. The wages of sin is death. Death eternal, death physical, and death spiritual. And so the mercy of God here spoken of and referenced in John chapter 6 is not what we deserve. Mercy is the withholding of what we justly deserve, namely judgment. And so divine mercy is not something we can demand. It's not something that we can say, God, you need to give me this. It's something that is given by the divine and sovereign mercy of God. And so what Jesus is doing here in John chapter 6, in this almost puzzling way that he references the sovereignty of God, what he's doing here is pointing the people to their utter helplessness in and of themselves. He's saying, if you think you can work your way to God, if you think you can work your way up to salvation, you're wrong. He's pointing them to their great need of the divine mercy of God. That they need to stop relying on their flesh. Their flesh is no help at all. That the only way they will be saved is if the Spirit of God brings life to their very souls. That belief itself is a gift of God. The early church father Augustine says this, Jesus teaches us here that even the act of believing is a gift and not a matter of merit. What did we read this morning in Ephesians chapter 2? We are saved by grace, not of our own doing. There's nothing we could do to earn the grace of God. There's nothing we could do to earn the mercy of God. That grace, salvation, even faith itself is a gift of God. What does Paul say? It's not a result of works. It's not because of what we've done. It's not because we're better than anybody else. It's not because we've done more good works than our bad works. It's because of the mercy of God alone. It's not a result of works. Why? So we can't boast. We can't boast. We can't go to God and say, look how much I did. Look how much I did to earn my salvation. Look how much I did. You know, you did a lot. You sent your son. You put him on the cross. But, but I did something too. No. We cannot boast. We have nothing to boast in. And the reason for this is that God receives all the glory. 
Sola Dea Gloria. God alone receives the mercy. And so as we walk away from this passage, we see that salvation is a work of the triune God. <laughs> it's not something we can do. It's a sovereign work of the triune God. That the Father draws His people to Himself. The Son accomplishes redemption for His people. And the Spirit brings resurrection life to their souls. Salvation is all of God and all of grace. We don't draw ourselves. We don't pick ourselves up. We don't redeem ourselves. We don't give ourselves life. We're incapable of that. It is God alone who does these things. It's a sovereign work of God in our salvation. And that is what Jesus is pointing these people to. That the Father draws the people of God by His Word and Spirit. The Son redeems them. He goes to the cross. He accomplishes redemption for His people. And the Spirit of God brings life to His people. Unless we think of God in sort of this compartmental way, right? That the Father does some stuff, and then the Son does some stuff, and then the Spirit does some other stuff. John chapter 5, the previous chapter, verse 21, says that the Father gives life. And then right after that says that the Son gives life. And we see here today that it's the Spirit that gives life. That all the works of God are what we call inseparable. There's a fancy word, inseparable operations, right? That the triune God, all of His works are one. Father, Son, and Spirit work inseparably. You can't divide them up. You can't say the Father does 33%, the Son does a little bit, and the Spirit does a little bit. No. All the works of God are by the power of the Spirit, through Christ, to the glory of the Father. This is the work of our triune God. This is what Jesus is pointing His people to. The reliance on God, not on themselves. And then finally, before we, before we um, close this morning... I want to sort of make a, a pretty practical application from here. And that is our tendency to rely on our flesh is not over once we're saved. We are tempted again and again to rely on our flesh, even as Christians, even as we walk by the Spirit. We are tempted constantly to rely on our own works, our own ability, our flesh. And the New Testament will look back on this passage, this idea of the Spirit giving life, the flesh of being of no help, and it will point us to this reality of the sanctifying work of the Spirit in the Christian life. That we not only need the Spirit of God to regenerate us, to justify us, to give us new creation life, but we need the Spirit of God to sanctify us and conform us to the image of Christ. Sanctify means to set us apart, to make us look more and more like our Savior. And in Galatians chapter 3, Paul is he's pressing the people, and he's saying, who has bewitched you? Who's tricked you? Do you think that just because you began something by the Spirit that you can finish this work by your flesh? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by your flesh by your works. And this is what we're tempted to do in our Christian life. We're tempted to see the work of the Spirit as just the beginning part, right? We have faith in God, we believe the gospel, and that's it. 
And then the rest of our Christian life is this slow drudge of knuckling, white knuckling it until we reach glory. And if we do more good than bad, then God will say, I guess that's good enough and you're in. No. The walk of the Christian is walking by the Spirit. That's what Paul says over and over again. Walk by the Spirit. And he contrasts this with the flesh, that the life of the Christian is a war between the flesh and the Spirit. The old man and the new man. And we see in this passage that it is the Spirit who gives life. We put to death the deeds of the body by the Spirit. And so this morning, in our struggle against sin, against our own unbelief, let's be honest, we're still sinners. We're not in the glory. We're not perfect yet. We still struggle with sin. We still struggle with unbelief. Is God real? Is this whole thing just a mist? Is it just made up? Right? We, we struggle with these things. Let's be honest with ourselves. And so how do we fight these things? How do we fight our sin? How do we fight temptation? Or when we, when we fall into sin and and struggling, how do we how do we combat this? It's nothing less than the empowering of the Spirit. It's trusting in the Spirit of God to work in our hearts. And what Paul will say elsewhere is that those who are in Christ have crucified the flesh. They've put the flesh to death. They've killed the spirit. We should not kill the spirit. They've killed the flesh, right? They put their sin to death. And so this idea of the Spirit giving us life is not just at the beginning of the Christian life. It is the thing that sustains us to the very end. That's why Jesus can say, no one's going to fall away. No one's going to perish. No one's going to pull them out of my hand. Because I'm keeping them by the sanctification of the Spirit of God indwelling my people. And so this morning we should have great confidence as we walk the Christian life. We're going to fail. We're going to sin. We're going to fall into deep darkness. But may we not rely on our own flesh. May we not rely on setting up these legalistic laws that we think are going to protect us from, from falling away. No. They have an appearance of wisdom, but they're no help in stopping our flesh. We need the Spirit of God to convict us of our sin and conform us to the image of His Son. And so this morning... Let's look to God. Let's not look to our flesh. Let's look to the Spirit of God. Let's pray that He would fill us and give us new life, new, new quickening power to fight our sin and to trust in Christ. That's our only hope. We have no other hope this morning. Let's pray. Lord, we thank You for this great act of salvation, for this great work of the Spirit that was promised in the Old Testament and has come to full flower in the new. And as your people today that have been sealed by the Spirit, as it says in Ephesians 1, we've been sealed by this mark, we've been marked by the Spirit, that we have a great hope this morning. We have a great assurance that for those of us that have trusted in Christ, we have the Spirit of God, as we read this morning. He's ours. The Spirit is ours. We are comforted by the Spirit. We are preserved by the Spirit. We have everlasting life because the Spirit of God has given us the benefits that Christ has won. And so this morning, we rest not in our own flesh, not in our own works, but we rely on the Spirit of God. Not only for our salvation, but our sanctification, our perseverance to the end. 
And as we, as we struggle in this life, as we sometimes fail, as we fall into sin and, and, and much darkness, Lord, we pray and we know that for those people that are yours, you will pull them out. That our faith, even though it is weak, will win the victory. That it will seize the final salvation that you have won for us. We have all we need in Christ. And so this morning we look to him with the eyes of faith, trusting that we have hope. We pray these things in your son's name. Amen.